0: Uh, Obviously, we're doing a roundtable this morning, which is a a little family discussion with the congregation and among some of the staff members. So we're going to invite you to join with us. Uh, We'll put a number up here on the screen. You can text questions in live that you would like to ask. Uh, We'll ask you to keep them a little bit on on topic. And, uh, you know, this is an ecclesiology. Yeah, Damon, just take his phone away. Uh, uh, Ecclesiology roundtable. Ecclesiology is a Greek term. Uh, it comes from the word ekklesia, that's the Greek word that the writers use, it's where we get our English word, church.
1: I did a preface about the technology issues we're having today, so at any point that could just explode, but we're going to keep turning it on until, and fire will until rain Jesus down from above home, okay? <laughs> Fantastic.
0: We lost the screens three times in the first service, so just bear with us, uh, if someone wants to write a check, we'll replace those this week. Um, <clears throat> uh, by the way, I had a lot of people last week go out of the service and say to me, Pastor, this may be the best church service I've ever been in in my life. That family worship we did last Sunday with all of the church family in one, one room at one time, baptizing those seven elementary s- students, that was an awesome service last week. And uh, I saw that you posted the, the baptism videos back out yeah, yeah. on social media. Uh, listen, if you're, if you're discouraged or down later this week, Go find those kids' baptism videos and watch that again, and you'll instantly not de- be depressed anymore. Just hearing them articulate their faith, it was such a, uh, an uplift, you know, such a blessing. So anyway, this morning, roundtable. Next week, we go back into a sermon series for the next five weeks uh, called Reverse the Curse. We'll talk about that later. But this morning, ecclesiology roundtable. Ecclesiology is a word for church. So when we go to seminary and uh, we study, we have to take classes and courses uh, called uh, Ecclesiology, 101, 201, whatever. Uh, Ecclesiology is a study of the New Testament church. could be church history. It could be church structures and formations. could be church governance. But Ecclesiology is a study of the church. So this morning we have a church roundtable, basically, and talk about church structure because there's been a lot of interest. We just elected deacons uh, just a few weeks ago uh, for the next year. And that all happens for us, our fiscal, and all start, everything starts in the summer here in our, because of the school year, the way we're structured. But there was a lot of interest in, what is a deacon? Maybe I'm a new Christian or I'm new to your church, and I was never really exposed to deacons. And you said I could nominate deacons on the website. What is a deacon? What is an elder? And so there was a lot of questions about church structure, and we thought, you know what? We need to just take a service and just stop for a minute and talk about church structure and why things are the way they are. That discussion, though, causes us to have to back up a little bit, and let me give you the backstory before we get to ecclesiology for just a minute, which we did in the first service. And the back story is simply, is simply this. Whatever changes we make in our church, and over, I've been over more than 20 years, we've made significant changes in structure, uh, in, 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 in emphasis. When we make changes... We're not just trying to keep up with the Joneses, be cool, or chase a fad. If we're making a change, it reflects a sincere desire to be as faithful and true to the New Testament as we can be. That's what it would be. And one of the things that we've embraced around here is that we have studied church history, and having studied church history, we can see constant reformations happening over the last 2,000 years, to bring us what we have here this morning, Christianity went through multiple reformations. We've had at least five in America great awakenings since the founding of our country by the pilgrims. Uh, and, and Christianity has times where it needs to be refreshed or where somebody needs to open a Bible and say, okay, hey, why are we doing what we're doing? What is the mission? Are we structured correctly? Are we honoring Christ and the New Testament by How and what we're doing. Let's make sure we're being faithful to the New Testament, and this represents a a conversation and uh, maybe this year even a little bit of a structural reorganization in our church to try to be as uh, to follow the Scripture as best we can. And so, if you see changes happening, it's always good to ask why. So I'm telling you the why up front uh, to, to be as faithful as we can to the Scripture. So now. Being faithful to the scripture, it, 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 it's not as easy as it might seem on face value. Uh, at Cornerstone, we believe the word of God is 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 without error. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit whispered into Paul and Peter and John's heart and said, write this down. Write the And the church in the first century looked at those writings and they canonized certain books. In other words, books that agreed, books that they saw consistently, books who were written by the... Uh, apostles of Christ they said this is going to be the Bible and the churches all agreed on what the canon of scripture was early and those books were brought in and uh, now here's the challenge they were written in Greek the New Testament Hebrew the Old Testament and the Jews were fastidious they were they were uh, so detail oriented it'd take me 30 minutes to explain it about how to maintain the purity of the Old Testament. That Masoretic text was handled by scribes. They counted every character on the page, copying page from page to get perfect reproductions of the Old Testament passed through history. And they've done a fantastic job. Things they've dug up that are just thousands of years, all match. As recently
2: as 2016, Leviticus, the Leviticus you have in your Bible, the oldest text that we have matches 100%, just so you know. And they
0: dug that up recently, recently, an archaeological find. The New Testament was written in Greek. Now, uh, here's the challenge: you have to take Greek to Latin. Here's the way the Bible came to us: then Latin to something like German, and then German to English, or Greek to Latin, Latin to French, French to English, or or, or Greek to Latin, Latin to German to French to Spanish to English. Now, uh, what is one word in Greek is like three words in English. Its and words are nuanced. It is not an exact science. Now, the one thing we want you to have is 100% confidence in your, in, in your Bible that it is the Word of God. But different Bible versions were translated by committees, teams of predominantly men. Some committees have women on them. And they were translated by teams of committees who are great scholars. But here's the deal. People have bias. People have a worldview, have lenses they look through. And your bias affects everything in your life. You have a worldview, so when you look at nature, your worldview is a Christian worldview. You see a creator when you look at nature. When I stand on the beach and see the ocean, I see a God that's awesome that could make that. When I stand on Pikes Peak and see the Rocky Mountains, I see God at work is what I see. When I see flowers and the birth of a child, and when I see things, I see God. That's my worldview. Uh, Somebody who's not a Christian may have a different worldview, and they see Evolution, or they see something else in play. Uh, people have bias, and they bring their bias to the work, and that's where things get a little, little sticky, and it's why we have to compare Greek texts specifically in order to find out what the real meanings of words are. Greek manuscripts don't have punctuation. Some Greek manuscript... Uh, Unseals or unseals and minuscules are either written in all caps or all small. Words all run together. There's even no spaces sometimes between the words. No punctuation, no paragraph marks. So the translator has to read what looks like one giant word, figure out where the words break, where the paragraphs break. Does that make sense? There are no verse and chapter markings when John wrote the book of John. John didn't write. John 1, 1. In the beginning, God. it doesn't look like that. Uh, He just wrote a letter with paragraph form, and then it became a verse and chapter Bible over time to you. What we want you to do is have complete confidence that God's Word is, is pure and it's right. The problem comes when a lot of guys handle it. And so you might think in this modern era, technology can solve this problem. Let's just take a Greek manuscript. Let's plug it into Google Translate. Flip it to English. And voila, we'll get a we'll get a Bible, but there may not be pronouns, there may not be commas. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't. Even the best technology we have in this modern era does not solve this problem. Let us illustrate. Tell them what they're about to say.
1: Yeah, well, it was one of these moments where they were, you know, when we were doing the, the preparation for this, they were putting some things into Google Translate and made me think of, uh, like, like you called him earlier, the great theologian, Jimmy Fallon, who sometimes lets people onto a show. And what they do is they take a song, a popular song, and they'll run it through Google Translate from English to, let's say, Swahili, and then from Swahili into uh, Russian, and then from Russian back into English. And it turns out something like this. Google Translate You were up first. Uh, you'll be singing the Google Translate version of ABBA's hit classic, Dancing Queen Which when translated is called Hula Prince.
2: <laughs> you want try to convert my friends Burn the man and then disappear when
1: you look at the- Good. Enjoy the drum of
0: But you get the point. If you want to have hours of entertainment, go out to YouTube and find the Jimmy Fallon Google Translate song videos and just watch them as we did in the office and just laugh our heads off because it's not an exact science. Something is definitely lost in the translation, as we say. And uh, the way you get the right translation is to understand who's writing, to whom are they writing, what is the context, compare Compare multiple translations and you get a correct uh, understanding of what's really, really being said. So what we want you to know is what's driving this conversation is not an attempt to be uh, edgy and cool, but an attempt to be scripturally accurate and to, to operate this church as closely as we can to what the New Testament is asking us to do, knowing the patterns get distorted over time. It's something we talk about in discipleship. The more you reproduce a pattern, it gets distorted, and you have to combat, reform it and come back to the original original model. So really we need to talk about what things look like in the beginning. Uh, what was a normative for a church? When I say norm, what is the norm for a first century church? When churches started, what was normative for a church? What did a church... What, what did it look like? Uh, uh, where did they meet?
1: Uh, yeah, here, I'll, I'll take this one. So uh, the church as we, as we know it now, you know, when a church comes together and gathers in a building, that wasn't the case um, with the early New Testament church. It actually didn't happen until way later, and we'll talk about that in a minute, about how church buildings came to be. Um, But when you actually look in Scripture, uh, I've picked out several verses, um, and I'm going to read through them quickly. If you want to jot them down, you can. But in Acts 2.46, it mentions that they go from house to house. Acts 5.42, mentions house to house. Acts 8.3, house after house. You start noticing a theme about where these people are meeting to worship together. In Cornelius' house, in Acts 10.22, Mary's house in Acts 12, 12. Uh, you go to the jailer's house in Acts 16, then same chapter, then you go over to Lydia's house for the group that's meeting there. You go to Justice's home in Acts 18. You go from house to house in Acts 20. Priscilla and Aquila's house shows up twice in both Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16. You got Nympha's home in uh, Colossians 4:15 and Philemon's house in Philemon 1, 2. So you just see a, a pretty constant theme and that's that when the people in early church met they didn't meet in a big building they met in each other's homes
0: and that was normative yeah uh as a matter of fact it's normative even today where we're planting churches whether it's asia south america central america and even in europe we start meeting in a home and when that home gets maxed out a couple of times then we begin to look for a church building but the church building, the normative church building, really throughout history, has been someone's home. And uh, especially in the
2: first few hundred years. In fact, the first, the first home that we see, which is even interesting there, it was a home. And as it grew, it, it appears that they tried to remodel it, change it. And Knock make walls it, and, out. Exactly. Make it what they needed it to be for their congregation. We don't see that until around 240
0: so there's a Christianity Today article linked in your version, in your notes, electronic notes that we provide to the congregation, and you'll see a link uh, to this home uh, church building. Uh, Christianity Today did a whole article on this that we researched, and uh, as far as they know, this is one of the earliest church buildings that has ever been discovered. Uh, it existed uh, 240s, is that stuff. 240s, in southern Syria, uh, just north of Israel, if you would. And uh, for those of you who have been to Israel a few months ago, you know, you stood and looked into Syria. Just right up there somewhere is this building. And uh, as far as they know, it was the first building that was basically for church. Walls knocked out. In other words, it wasn't a bedroom in a central meeting room, dining room. Now it's just one big room, let's meet. lasted for 10 or 20 years and some invading group, then knocked this building down. But you can read the, read the article about it. So what's normative is to meet at someone's kitchen table.
1: Who is meeting at the table? Like, who who is there?
0: So let's talk about who's in the room. First century church, second century church, third century church. We're in somebody's home, so who's there is the homeowner. So just, that's first of all. And many of those homeowners, those were their names that you just read. And It's Chloe, it's Phoebe, it's Nympha, uh, it's Justice, uh, uh, it's Lydia, uh, they became the patrons, the people who financially supported and helped the church. They opened their home to the church. The church basically consumed their dining room, if you would, and everybody's sitting around the kitchen table for worship service. Who's in the room is the homeowner? Uh, Lydia and these examples that you gave, these were entrepreneurs. These are, if you would, white collar families. They all had slaves, so their slaves are in the room. And we know their slaves are in the room because Paul mentions them multiple times in the text. Uh, We know that in the room are Jews who have converted out of Judaism to Christianity. We know that in the room are idolaters, which are all Europeans at this point. Well, you think of Europe as Christian because you're thinking backwards to your forefathers. At this point in history, all Europeans are pagan idolaters. So there's a lot of people who converted from idolatry sitting in the room. There are men in the room. There are women in the room. There are white people and brown people and black people and every shade of people sitting around that table. Uh, so Paul would go on to write right in Galatians 3. This would be a good verse for us. He's writing to the church at Galatia, and there, wherever division shows up, Paul keeps pulling them back to the kitchen table and saying, listen, we've met here for church, as a church, and who's in the room is kind of reflected by what Paul says. He says, right here, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There's neither bond nor there's slave nor slave owner. Now, I want you to feel the power of that. Because there were male and female, multiple races, multiple backgrounds, multiple socioeconomic levels meeting at the table. But Paul said, not now. Now we're coming for worship. And when we come together around jesus christ or where we meet at the cross however you want to say it we are all equal in jesus christ so i I could expand that to you this morning as normative of the century in which you live in we come here this morning we're not all male we're not all female In a lot of cultures men sit on one side women sit on the other the jewish synagogues i've been in the men sit here the women sit in the balcony not in the new testament church of jesus christ we're all one We don't say, Filipinos here, Hispanics here, whites here, blacks here, uh, Chinese. We, We don't divide the congregation in that way because scripturally it's not appropriate. Paul says, it doesn't matter, we're all one. We don't say, slaves over here, business owners over here. We're all one this morning in Jesus Christ. I hope you feel good about that. Sitting at the table were people who converted from idolatry, people who converted from Judaism. Paul said, now we are all in common together in Christ. There's slaves at the table. The Bible tells us there are people who, both men and women, who are former prostitutes being converted into Christianity, slaves being converted into Christianity. They're all sitting around the kitchen table together. Uh, We know some of this because, like in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, there's a big issue with... with, uh, how we interact around the table. Um, Here's a young lady who is a prostitute, or maybe is a prostitute. She's received Jesus Christ as her Savior. She's sitting at the table. Here's the patron of the home, the woman who owns the home, sitting right here. In a Roman culture, she has standing in the culture. And when she goes through the streets, she wears a, a veil over her head, and it's a sign of her socioeconomic status. When they see her walk down the street, they say, This is, she's married to someone, she's somebody, she has wealth, she has standing. The prostitutes in Roman culture were forbidden to veil. In other words, if you were a prostitute, you could not veil. It's against the law to veil. And it was an indication of what your job, what your profession was. You were known to be a prostitute by the unveiling and how you presented yourself in society. Now imagine the tension when we gather around the table. Here's a former idolater. Here's a former Jewish Pharisee. Here's a man. Here's a woman. Here's slaves. Here's converted prostitutes. And, and when we open the Scripture and say, let's pray, D, you come from the East. You understand this. In the East, when I go to preach in Asia, and I say, let's bow our heads and pray, all the women will grab their... Sorry, their veil, I'm not sure what to call it, and they'll pull it over the top of their head when we pray as a sign of respect, as a sign of, of standing. Imagine now we're in the, at the table in someone's home, and uh, Paul says, let's pray. And the prostitute grabs the veil and lifts it over her head. And the guy next to her grabs her arm and says, uh ah, 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 you're not allowed to veil your prostitute. There's a whole piece of Bible written about this that you may never have discovered <laughs> where Paul says, forbid them not to veil. In other words, the rich woman veils, who owns the home, the people with standing veil, and here's the prostitute, she's like, do I have equal respect in this congregation or not? And she reaches over and covers her head with the veil. Paul said, leave her alone. Let her veil just like every other woman in the room. Now, you can't imagine, unless somebody explains these things, how counterculture some of the writings are of the New Testament where Paul is saying receive the black receive the slave receive the Asian receive the European receive the adult we're not male nor female bond and slave and slave we're not all of that we're not labels in a room we are one in Jesus Christ this morning as we gather to worship our Savior that's revolutionary in the New Testament and it continues until today in the church of Jesus Christ that's why we have such openness in our, yep. in, our con- in our congregation. So that's who's at the table. Yep. Uh, you were even talking about earlier, I think, from uh, the church at Philippi. Yep.
2: Yeah, in Acts chapter 16, we see a pretty clear picture of, of this even playing out. We have Lydia, who's one of the first converts in the city of Philippi. She's a wealthy woman, an entrepreneur, think fashionista. She has a house in L.A., a house in New York. She's very wealthy, very well-to-do. She receives Christ and then begins uh, really the church in her home. The next thing that happens in the story in Acts chapter 16 is a slave girl gets rescued um, from, her, from her slavery, from her slave masters. She was like a fortune teller girl. Um, she was demon, demon possessed. possessed. That's right. And she would, she would uh, uh, for money for the masters, would tell people's fortunes. And she gets saved um, uh, by Paul. And now where is she supposed to go? She's saved. She saved the owners. To kick her at, out. Can
0: she sit at the table with everybody else? And here's
2: the thing. is, is She's now ushered into Lydia's house, wealthy entrepreneur. Here's a slave girl. Um, who's now a part of the church. And then after she gets freed, because everyone's so frustrated with Paul and Silas about this happening, they get thrown in jail. And so the soldier, who's also a jailer in this moment, is kind of like a blue collar, wants to watch the chariot races with the beer on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? That's what his... Head of law that's enforcement in the do. community. Yeah. Yep. Rule follower. And so here he is sitting in the, chur- in the church with all of these people of different mix. All All that is happening. And I can imagine that he would be the one to probably grab the slave girl's arm and say, no, you're not allowed to... By Roman law, you're not allowed to veil. I imagine that these kind of things happened I frequently. represent
0: the law in this community. Right. I'm the head law enforcement officer in this community. Can you imagine the converted thief sitting in the room? A lot of tension there. Hiding in the corner saying, holy cow, is that the chief law enforcement officer over there? You know what I'm saying? What's going to happen if I if – I, yeah. well – They were all one in Christ. That's what happened.
2: And Paul, you see that over, not just in Galatians, but over and over and over again. You see Paul's commending us, commending them and us, to not worry about all the extra stuff, but to worry about Christ.
0: So that's who's in the room, and it's a mix of everybody. And that really is the source of most conflict, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, is this. We're mixing now everybody together, and everybody's got their baggage they're bringing in, and Paul's writing the letters to sort that out. Now the next logical question would be, what's happening in the room? We're in somebody's home at the kitchen table. There's the cast. What are they doing? What happens in the first
2: century yeah. church? So it looks a little different, but also looks a lot the same as what we do. They're having communion together. Um, they're absorbing the Lord's Supper. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. They're having fellowship over a meal. Over a meal. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, uh, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. We see in 1 Corinthians 14:26 a whole host of things, but we see prophecy, we see preaching and teaching, we see them singing together, we see them giving prayer, and we see also them exercising whatever their spiritual gift might have been. There's a lot happening in the church and um, in, in these places, and I, I guess what... My next question would be, so if we have this happening, it's in an kind of a tight community, we're all sitting around the kitchen table together, there's really only probably 30, 40, 50 of us. There's not, we're not a huge crowd. We're just a small group of people. Is it just chaos? Is it just a free-for-all, or is there somebody organizing Every,
0: this? It, does everybody do what they want to do, yeah. or is somebody conducting a... a service. A scripted uh-huh. or organized or some kind of directive uh, of how the service, and that's a fair question. One of the things you notice in Scripture is that uh, Paul is constantly trying to overlay organization onto the churches. So Paul is discipling a young man named Titus to be a pastor, Timothy to be a pastor. And a lot of the uh, reason we know these things is because Paul is instructing them how to to do things. So Paul tells Titus, for example, in Titus chapter number 1 verse 5, this is why I'm leaving you in Crete. And Crete was a tough mission field. Uh, even the Cretans said about the Cretans, they are always liars. Remember that? It's recorded in Scripture. It's a hard mission field. But Paul said, I'm leaving you, Titus, in Crete to set in order, to, 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 to pull, uh, put what remains in order, to, to, to make sure that this is done in an organized fashion. And part of that verse is appoint elders. Put somebody in charge and begin to organize the services. Make sure it's done indecently and in order. Acts 14, a very similar thing. Uh, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. So they're setting up elders. We start seeing this generic term. There's somebody in charge of the churches. Timothy, he writes, first Timothy, I've left you in Ephesus so that you can correct the heresies and keep order and guide the church. What we would think of as pastor, but sure. The, the word that keeps popping up is, is appoint elders in every city. There needs to be organization in the, in the churches. So, so were those guys seminary graduates? There was no seminary. There's no Bible college. There's no, there's no Dallas Baptist, Dallas Theological, Southwestern Theological. South, those, those schools are an American thing. In these days, you learn because of, Christianity has its roots in Judaism. And in Judaism, the way they trained people is there was a rabbi, a teacher... And a disciple. And he chose disciples and he discipled him and said, you will be as your master. And that's the way Paul got to be a Pharisee. He was discipled by Gamaliel. And they brought that over into Christianity. And Jesus adopted the discipleship process as the way to spread the kingdom of God. Go and make disciples. Matthew 28 was the command of Jesus Christ. There's no Bible college to go to. (laughs) There's no seminary. You came to spiritual maturity through a process of spiritual formation guided by a teacher, by someone who was discipling you through a relational environment. Let me give you a good example. Just a few months ago, almost a year now, almost a year ago, you ordained Amos Khan uh, on the other side of the world in Asia. Amos Khan is a disciple of Aaron Kaba. I got a chance to disciple Arin Kaba for a while, and Ezekiel took over that role. Aaron Kaba is a prince of a guy started now maybe three churches. He's discipling this man named Amos Khan. Amos Khan, I don't even know if Amos Khan went to school at all. Any school. ABC school. 123 school. So we got a chance to get Amos Khan to write down his testimony. And one of the questions we asked Amos Khan is, How'd you get to be a pastor? He said, Within. He was stunned by the question, like we had asked the dumbest thing in the world. He's like, well, who else would be the pastor? He said, I'm the only saved person in the village. And when I go to the village and lead people to Christ, everyone in this city has been led to Christ by me. I'm the only Christian who's ever stepped foot in this place. And I've led half of my clan to Christ, and I want to be ordained so that I can baptize them now, and we can keep making disciples. That's what first century Christianity looked like. He's the pastor because he's the spiritual shepherd of the, uh, of the believers in the community. There is nobody else. Does that make sense? There is no structure that you would understand. So he begins to bring the structure of eldership or pastorship to those people that he, had, that he oversees. Which leads to this. What are, really, what are the offices of the New Testament? And this is yeah, one of the studies I, that you did.
1: I'd be really curious to ask you guys, just from your knowledge of, of the Bible, tell me, what offices do you know of from the New Testament of the church? Deacon?
0: It's not a trick question. It's not scary. Yeah.
1: Say it again? Oh, I heard police officer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Pa- pastor. Pas- pastor. <laughs> Bishop? Okay. Anything else? Priest, I think I heard. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yes, some apostle. people from the, from the first service also said apostle, someone said teacher. So we've got a, a wide variety of, of, you know, opinions, or not even opinions, just conceptions of what, what the New Testament offices are in the church. One thing that I think really speaks into what our understanding of church offices are is really what your church background is. So I've grown up in a Baptist church my whole life, which means that I primarily have only ever heard of pastors and deacons. Um, I know of some Baptist churches that have, you know, an elder board, but that I wasn't ever familiar with that. I know that my mom, uh, she was born in Cuba. She grew up in a, uh, in a very Catholic household. And so her, her family was very, you know, very much a part of the Catholic Church. So she had priests and, you know, ultimately the Pope and bishops and the whole structure. So uh, one thing that I think really affects what our what we read into the Bible as far as what the church rules are is really just what our experience is and what our tradition so comes from. So your mom
0: came from... Pope, bishops, priests. Right. So when she realized she wasn't born again and received Christ as her Savior and really kind of came out of that... What do you think her response was to those terms?
1: Yeah, she, she didn't want anything to do with them. Only because she was coming. You know, we're not here to speak against any other church, honestly. Um, it's just that her coming out of a situation that she wasn't fond of, she went to a different situation and was relieved to find that there were differing terms. So it, there wasn't the familiarity of what she came out of. You know, so when we look at pa- Baptist churches, we see pastors and deacons primarily. You go to a Presbyterian church, you add on elders to that. Um, Your uncle is a Presbyterian pastor.
0: Elder, pastor, co-equal. Yeah. Maybe even elders a little. Pastor may come and go, but the elders remain the same. Sure, yeah. So elders and pastors up here really guiding and then deacons serving more material needs in the church under that.
1: Right. So, yeah, then you go to a non-denominational church, and you'll see that there's a wide variety of structures, God. right? So you might have any combination of any of the church offices that are out there. Uh, then you go to the Catholic church, obviously, like I mentioned before, and you have the, the pope, and it trickles down through all those offices Come that on. are very foreign to us.
0: So there, all of the Christ, Christian groups have similarity. And I guess the similarity is there is... Clearly defined structure.
1: Which there should be.
0: But they all interpret the Scripture slightly differently. And so, you know, we might be tempted to ask this morning, who's right and who's wrong? Church Christ's right? Elders? The deacons? Uh, are the Presbyterians right? The Episcopalians right? The Catholics right? <clears throat> and the real answer uh, that we've come to peace with uh, in our study is, n- they're all right. Sure. It's because it's the way they interpret uh... the the biblical terms that we're going to talk about in just a moment and overlay them into a structure into their context and the point is that there is structure the point is that the structure serves the mission the mission is making disciples if our structure doesn't serve our mission let's change our structure so that we can get the mission of the great commission done
2: the reason we get to that opinion is because we don't see Jesus in, the new, like in his Gospels. We don't see Jesus come out and say, okay, now you must appoint deacons. Okay,
0: so, so elaborate on that. Jesus didn't invent deacons. Somebody right. else did. Right. So that happened in the next generation of believers. Jesus made disciples. The leaders of those disciples were called apostles. Right. And those apostles invented Deacon in the next generation of Christianity.
1: So before we get too deep into this, I think it's important to define some terms really quick. So when we say deacon, what we're re- what we're really saying um, is the Greek word diakonos, right? So let's put that up there. While the screens are working. While the screens are working, these are going to blow up any second. Uh, diakonos. and uh, when you look at the the Greek meaning of this, remember like we said, Greek Greek translations can go you know several different directions. So when you when you look up the, uh, the word diakonos, you get deacon, you get servant, you get minister. Okay. So when we're talking about a deacon, we're talking about someone who is specifically called to minister and, and serve the church body. Uh, most of the time when you see this practically, uh, this is going to be the people that are serving the, the physical needs of the church body, right? Like you, well, you, when
0: the apostles invented this, yeah, they said, we, we can't, Read the Word of God, study, and spend time in prayer because we are so exhausted from trying to meet the material needs of the widows. Yeah. The needy people in the congregation who need us to come do things for them. and Legitimately. Legitimate. Yeah. And there's nothing. But they just said, we, we can't do both uh, adequately. Let us invent a new position in the church, the akinosus. Diakonos. And they will minister to the material needs of of the congregation. Correct.
1: Yeah. So that that is an actual church office. It's called that way several times throughout Scripture, where it's a a designated role of the church. Right. The next one that we have is presbyteros, um, and this one this one's a bit tricky to translate. Sometimes it's translated as elder, which is a very clear spiritual oversight kind of role within the church. You see a lot of times elders plural. So more than one elder, you've got an elder board over a church. It's providing spiritual insight. Other times you see the word uh, presbyteros, and it just means an old person. 1
0: Timothy 5, twice
1: used Yeah. to the, uh, treat the older
0: men, yep. presbyteros. Yep. A few verses later, the older women. It literally just means old man and old woman. Yeah. That's what the presbyteros means. Pre-Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, they assembled the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, presbyteros. That was the Sanhedrin council that ruled Israel, the ones who ultimately condemned Christ to death. That ruling body of Israel were also called elders. So it's used in multiple ways in the New Testament. But we can figure out where those, that's that. Old person is old person, but there is a one usage that's becoming clear that's providing this Yeah, and I think,
1: I think when they were coming up with words, right, for, like, what are we going to call this spiritual oversight person? They saw the example of the elderly people and said, well, what about the people who are spiritually elder, right? The people who are spiritually mature in age to where they can serve us well. So they used a, a kind of a play on words there.
0: Because we like to distinguish between biological age and, and spiritual maturity. You can be a young man or woman and still have spiritual maturity. You can be spiritually an elder and still be a young person. Right. And you can be an old man or an old woman and not have spiritual maturity. Yeah. yeah. Did we lose the screen? Yeah, you don't get to
1: see the last one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm just kidding. know the last one, uh, and that will hopefully come back on here in a minute. We'll see. It's hard to know. Um, <laughs> The last one is episcopos. Okay, so this is where, and if you're writing this down, it's E-P-I-S-C-I-P-O-S. This is where, you know, you get even the term episcopalian, all these things. Episcopos. This translates as bishop. So whoever said bishop earlier, uh, kudos. It also says overseer, um, and it's four times referring to the, the office of a bishop or an overseer. This is kind of the, the head person, right? So in our context, you would be our episcopos. Bishop. Bishop, yeah. So
0: most church, all churches, you can, you can basically break down the organizational structure. They're bishop led, mm-hmm. uh, episcopos, or they're uh, Presbyterian led, presbyteros, uh, led by an elder board, led by pastor, led by elder board. The third model is congregational, which is pure chaos typically. It can only happen in a church of about 20. Those are the three models. Now some of you grew up in a congregational-led church, which means you vote on everything. So uh, that only is practical when your church is very small and one or two families want to control the entire church. Um, And I'll tell you why that, just in a few sentences, why that's not effective. We assume that we can read your mind on a few things. For example, if the air conditioner units had gone out on Wednesday in this room, and we knew that on Sunday morning it was going to be 147 degrees, we would assume that you would want us to go ahead and call the AC company and get them out here to fix those air conditioners prior to a church vote to appropriate those funds. Is that fair? Uh, If we were to run out of toilet paper on Thursday, we would not wait until Sunday to have a church vote and then go buy it on Monday we assume you wanted things stocked this morning when you came in. And those are rough examples, but you understand some things can be anticipated and planned for and don't require a church vote. A congregational model makes you vote on everything. And that's why that's the least used model we we hope. But most models will break down to either episcopal form or presbyterian form of government, pastor led, elder led, or some hybrid some combination of that
1: it's funny that you say pastor led because i don't see pastor on that list actually <laughs> you want to explain to yeah. him why yeah so so here's the thing with with the term pastor um when you when you look at the word pastor in the actual greek um you don't you don't find it really in the greek New Testament. poimos poimen yeah poimen. how um, many times does it show up it's, okay so it shows up one time well uh, that's not true it shows up a few times Um, It shows up a few times as a verb talking about shepherding and caring for people. Right. And so and we don't even translate it pastor. We translate it as care for or feed or take care of. So that's what pastor means. You see it one time in Ephesians 4:11, 11, um, and this is where it, it's using the connotation of pastor, right, as um, as someone who cares for and, and shepherds people. And it hyphenates it with another word um, of teacher. So it's it's this idea that you are the person who cares for the flock and teaches them right? Um, someone in the first service actually asked a good question, just saying, you know, it, well, we, we should all be shepherding people, but we're not all pastors, like, as far as this role, um, which is true, because the pastor hyphen teacher is a little bit different. It's a nuanced version of just pastor by itself. God calls us to shepherd people. That's just, it, it is what we are to do. Poyman is a shepherd um, sometimes, and, and one time is translated pastor. So
0: should people... If they want to be really scriptural, call me bishop.
1: I mean, okay, so here's the thing is, you know, what, what you do is you pastor. Bishop Bobby. Right? You bishop are, Bob. You are pastoring people. Uh, you are also technically, I mean, I guess you could, we could call you bishop. I don't like that personally <laughs> sitting right here. It just feels
0: weird. It but, feels weird. Yeah. Because typically evangelicals are not this formal.
2: It's not our context. It's not our context. Well, and, and when the Reformation happened uh, 500 years ago there was such a distinctive move away from Catholicism that there were new and different words that were supposed to be used. So not unbiblical words, not unbiblical words, but words that we, we changed uh, in order in order to be distinct, in order to signal to people who walked in our church that we are structured this way, we look this way on purpose, right. and we look different from what we used to look like.
0: So that now, really, in America, 500 years later, if somebody says, hey, what are you doing? You say, well, I'm the one of the pastors over at Cornerstone. Yeah nobody even is weird about that they totally understand what you do as soon as you say pastor because it's it's really just it's our vernacular it is american culture now that we all know and we don't really use the word bishop unless you're still in the catholic tradition right Uh, or
2: episcopal
0: or but they just don't use it that much they typically still would refer to yeah yeah i
1: think a really good distinction is that pastor is more often used as a verb than it is as a noun um, and That's so right. pastoring is more something that you do. So, so in our context
0: at Cornerstone, people, th- these, th- the audience this morning, congregation is looking here at three of their pastors. Mm-hmm. But we as their pastors are looking at the congregation saying, really, we, we are looking at a bunch of pastors this morning. I want you to think about what we see when we see you. Again, let me be clear. Pastor is not a Bible word that you would use for my position but we use it in America because we all know what we're saying. Does that make sense? We took a word. It's not really the Bible word. Bishop is the word for what we do. But you use the word pastor because of the way Christianity has come to us now in America. But the word really means to feed, to protect, to guide. Think of a man or woman with some sheep.
1: Yeah, like a shepherd with...
0: You feed, you guide, you protect. Uh, So... Really, in our context, we have how many disciple makers, disciple leaders? Yeah. 96, 100?
1: 80, 85.
0: Okay. So we have 85 pastors in this church. From our point of view, we consider that we have 85 pastors. Who are the small group leaders that are in this room right now? The discipleship leaders, there you are. And so you, you oversee spiritually the lives of two or three or four or five people. You pray for them every day, you make them accountable to be in the Word. You've memorized scripture with your disciples. You have a, you have a definite starting point, milestones, uh, benchmarks, and a definite goal with your disciple. And your goal is to have them spiritually mature as you so that they can go make disciples. That is the very definition of pastor. That is guiding, protecting. And when your disciple, Susan led a woman to Christ, and I remember in the early days, she's like, stay off the internet, don't be Googling your spiritual questions. You'll not come to the right answers, you'll just confuse yourself. You know she's protecting her. she's guiding her, she's praying with her. And so we ha- well and in those 80-something people, probably 60, 40 split women men Is yep. that fair? That's yep. 60 40.: that, That's average in most churches. So we have about you know, 60 women pastors here, about 40 other men pastors here, and they're guiding spiritually the lives of other people, protecting them, feeding them and speaking in to, to their lives. so uh, that's the real proper use of the word pastor in in the cornerstone congregational context. Yeah, so, and we're
2: not advocating that we change the words and start saying bishop Bobby or no. or whatever, or pastor
0: Susan or pastor yeah yeah. yeah but no. we
2: just want you to understand w- these New Testament words in order for us to move forward correctly and, and smoothly, because we want to run this thing as fici- as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Because really, what we have structure-wise is we have the episcopos. And then kind of little Episcopos right here, there's one sitting over there, uh, Eric McNair, Eric McAdoo would be another one. She leads our, so really we have,
0: we have pastors over ministry functions, right. over youth, and over part of the adult congregation, over worship. And, and Erica McAdoo, pastor over our children, and pastor over our preschool. And, and these uh, pastors over uh, segments of the church family, for example, David doesn't just minister to teenagers. Right. Uh, if there is a teenager, then it implies there is a 50-year-old somewhere, a 40- or 50-year-old adult in this church somewhere. That teenager didn't parachute down out of the sky. There's somebody there's a responsible adult here somewhere that birthed that young man or the woman. And so David doesn't just minister to the teenager. Many times he's ministering to those parents as well. Many times I'm ministering to the parents you're ministering to. The team. It's a teamwork. Sure. It's, a, it's, a, it's all inter inner connected in that form, which is why uh, the heads of our, so it's our staff pastors, if you would, very much act like a board of elders right now in an elder-driven church, overseeing the spiritual ministry functions of the church. Now, I know you and I, we we laid some rubber flooring this week in the kids' worship area, uh, play area, you know. Uh, We put some paint on the walls, and we roll up our sleeves, and we get, get dirty around here It's not our ideal. Uh, It's not really on our paper job description. But we do whatever we have to do to serve the body of Christ. But what can happen is you can get so overrun with doing tasks, uh, mowing the seven acres, caring for the plumbing, the electrical, the AC, the widows, the yards that need to move. That You can't even function in your spiritual role. Which is why the apostles created deacons. In the first place, so that they can hand part of that off. The whole point is the church needs an organizational structure that works for the body, right. and it works for how we are doing we're, we're doing the, the Lord's business here in the in the kingdom of God. Uh, so one of the things to consider it, we consider all of these guys, and we have elected deacons, but it would be great if everybody here was a deacon, oh, yeah. diaconos in the pure definition of servant minister oh, yeah. to the body. Uh, or uh, pastor, if you would, shepherding, guiding, feeding. Uh, and um, one of the things I think to consider is what, what role does the Holy Spirit play in gifting people for ministry when we consider the offices and the functions that are going on in the, in the body of Christ? Anybody have any comments on that?
2: Go ahead. I,
1: actually, we just got a question in. Um, it says, I'm a woman, but I've always scored high in shepherding and pastoring in my spiritual gifts test, and I always felt that must be wrong. Can you help me understand that? So it's this idea that, you know, that I, I feel gifted to do something, but... Well, not just feel. I am gifted Every to do Every time you take a
0: spiritual gifts test, you score high in pastor.
1: Yeah, so what do you do with that? Your
0: small group leader says you have the gifts of, you have gift of, of shepherding, of pastoring. Right. Uh, again, it's, it's how we're using the word. So pastor doesn't mean you have to be the bishop. Pastor means you're gifted in shepherding, caring, feeding, and protecting a small group of people. Yeah. So it's very common, and I guess we get the results of your spiritual gifts test. We get an email copy when, it, when you take it. I guess we could go up in the office this week and pull all the responses, sort them by male-female, sort by top three gifts, and I bet we would find a good, every of all the people that score, go ahead.
2: So you're telling me, just hold on, so you're telling me... That when Paul gives us the spiritual gifts, when he lists them out in Romans 16 and 12 and 1 Corinthians, when he lists them, he doesn't say, all the men I have gifted you to be pastors. So the, sp- all-
0: <laughs> the spiritual gifts are never parsed by gender. This is what everybody needs to embrace this morning. Or race
1: or status or anything.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, first Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, you know, the spir- or Ephesians 4, here spiritual gifts to the church for men. He never says here are spiritual gifts for women. He never says here are spiritual gifts for white people. He never says here are spiritual gifts for slaves. Here are spiritual gifts for entrepreneurs. Here are spiritual gifts for college educated. Here are spiritual gifts for the uneducated. The spiritual gifts are never parsed by gender, by socioeconomic status, by race. They're never parsed. Does that make sense? So God writes to the church through Paul, the gifts of the Spirit are these. That's it. And some of you will have prophecy, uh, 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 helps, uh, uh, administration, government, uh, pastoring. And the Holy Spirit, this is Paul's whole point, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit decides who gets what. Would everybody in this room be okay if God ran the universe and decided who got what? Are you all okay with that? I'm okay with that. Uh, are you okay if God decides who's going to be what? That's my question to you. Because that's what Paul said happening in 1 Corinthians 12. So God has decided. God has set Ephesians 4. Some in the church, apostles, prophets, uh, pastors, teachers. For the edification of the body of Christ, God decides. And the Holy Spirit gifts people as he has called them.
1: You had a really great example uh, from Second Kings. In the,
0: in, the first con- in the first service... Uh, I said, basically, we could just pick a gift. Prophecy is one of the gifts mentioned in the New Testament. So, do only men prophesy in the Bible? There's a good example. Is this a male-only thing? Let me give you a few references you might want to write down. First, Second uh, Kings chapter 22, verse 14. Let me give you the context. They're remodeling the temple. When they knock down a wall, they find a secret chamber, and hidden in that chamber is a portion of the Old Testament Bible, a portion that they had lost and no one had ever read. It was hidden there to protect it from the enemies getting it in a time of siege. It was walled up. And they took that piece of Scripture out, and the king, Josiah, gave it to Hilkiah the high priest and said, we've just discovered a portion of the Bible. Can somebody tell us what it says and what we're supposed to do about it? Hilkiah, the high priest, said, when I, went to, when I was trained by the, my rabbi, we didn't have this. So I don't know. We're going to have to find a prophet. We're going to have to find somebody who says, thus saith the Lord, to help us interpret what we've just found. Now, this is a day in which the major prophets, I'm talking people like Isaiah, people who wrote books of the Old Testament, were alive right now. And the king said, Hilkiah, here's the book. He gives it to the high priest. The high priest says, we're going to give it to our best Bible scholar. Let me read. So Hilkiah the priest, and Hakim and Achabor, and Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. It's recorded twice in the Old Testament that Huldah was the go-to prophetess They delivered the word of God. The high priest delivered the Bible to her and said, can you please teach us what this says? She was the greatest Bible scholar of her generation. I bet you've never heard a sermon about her on Mother's Day, have you? Anyone? Also, Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching to the newly empowered, spirit-empowered church. Acts chapter 2. Peter says, he's quoting, the Old Testament prophets. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit, watch the words, on male flesh. Talk to me. All flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall. Peter said it's being fulfilled right now, Acts chapter 2. The Old Testament's being fulfilled right now. Say what's happening. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy in this New Testament. Church age. Uh, Acts chapter 21, Philip the evangelist, maybe one of the first deacons, went to be evangelist. Paul stayed in Philip's home uh, in Caesarea, if you went to Israel, Caesarea on the sea. And uh, Philip is noted for this reason Philip had four virgin daughters. Help me out.
1: Who prophesied.
0: Thank you. <laughs> who prophesied. Had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Four women prophets. Acts chapter number 21. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Jesus is going into the temple being carried by Mary and Joseph. Little guy going in the temple for his baby dedication. And as they carry him into the temple, it was Anna the prophetess who scooped baby Jesus up and had that Lion King moment. You know, there in the temple with baby Jesus uh, calling out the Messiah. Uh, it was 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul talked about the spiritual gifts and he said, I, I, I know you, some of you, I want, I want all of you to speak in tongues and the word all is used over and over in this chapter. I want all of you to speak in tongues. But, even more to prophesy. this tongues is the best gift. It's an inferior one. Proclaiming the word of God is the best gift. I want all of you to proclaim the word of God. All of you to prophesy. The word all keeps showing up, and it's definitely referring to both men and women in First Corinthians chapter number 14. So, the takeaway is pretty straightforward. God gifts people in the congregation as he sees fit. Uh, it's not our business to tell somebody no, you're, you're, you're not getting, no, you're not, the Holy Spirit decides. And he gives, now we could recognize gifts, we can help them find their gifts, we can even test for your gifts. There are mechanisms to do this. But saying to you, No, you're a woman, you can't have that gift. That exists nowhere in Scripture whatsoever. And in relation to Dioconos, Presbyteros and Episcopos, how a church is to be structured, there are lots of structures. Who's right? They're all right, as long as you have structure that serves to get the mission done. That is the point. Things can't be done willy-nilly and, and in a disorganized way. We need organization in our lives. We need organization in how we're carrying out the mission of Jesus Christ. But the fact that the Church of Christ, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, and the Baptists don't agree on whether it's pastor, elder, deacon, pastor, elder, deacon, pastor, elder, elder, deacon. The fact that we don't agree on exactly how to lay out that combination doesn't mean one's right and wrong. It means find out how you interpret those texts and begin to overlay that structure on your church. Now, at Cornerstone, we have Pastor Deacon. And that's all we've ever had. And part of the reason we're having this con- conversation is because as we're reading the Scripture, we're really seeing that elder and deacon are really distinct. distinct. Yeah. Elder is more, how would you describe this?
1: Spiritual oversight, right? It's the, Those are the kind of the sounding board, I would say.
0: Whereas uh from the text is... Uh,
1: I mean, servant is a good translation for it.
0: Well, Jesus called himself, Paul called himself a servant.
1: Yeah, uh, a servant to the church body. But
0: in official office, you can see a distinction where one's more spiritual and oversight, and one is more, hey, we have members who are suffering that need help. How do we meet their needs? That's diakonos, really. And so I can see in a year or so as we Keep growing as a church. I think we're ready to restructure diakonos here and pull out an elder board. Does that make sense? Define elder and clearly distinguish between what an elder and a deacon is and begin to work them. Right now, the staff would serve as an elder board. We see value in having congregants who are very spiritually mature men and... almost said women. We'll talk about that later. ...of the word... Come alongside us and help guide the spiritual direction of the church. That's right. Does that make sense? And, and
2: to increase the level of accountability and focus moving forward to accomplish our mission. Well, what's our mission cornerstone?
0: And, and so we need accountability in that. Well, somebody asked this question in the early service about accountability.
1: Yeah, like well, what, what is the, uh, in what ways? so if you have a structure where you've got tomb a bishop. To
0: whom is the bishop accountable, is that's Is he what just they the ask. top
1: of the totem pole or does he have anyone that he holds himself accountable to?
0: The answer is yes, and uh, I make myself accountable to uh, the staff and to the deacon board. Uh, but I also make myself accountable to exterior godly men that I've set up in my life. Roy Mack would be one where if I have a, a, a question scripturally that I'm really struggling with, I talk to the staff about it. So it's really how, why we got to this. And uh, I would call people like that, that are, that are people who have been pastoring for you know, 25, 30 years, leading multiple congregations, like-minded to Cornerstone, and I, I would make myself accountable to them. But this is also the reason that Baptists, especially independent Baptists, uh, Pentecostals, uh, have such corruption and scandal at the leadership level whether it's sexual immorality or uh, embezzlement, financial issues, fraud. This is the reason you see people at the top of ministries getting in trouble because they've set up a ministry where there's no accountability for the bishop in that model. We think that's a bad thing. Can you all understand? We think that's a bad thing. We are advocating for more accountability, not less. We believe we need to... Listen, discipleship is built on Accountability. You need to have someone say, hey, were you in the Word today? Hey, you got your memory verse going? Hey, are you walking with God? Hey, do you need some help? That's a good thing, not a bad thing in our lives. And we're inviting more accountability at the top level is what we're inviting. As a matter of fact, a church reached out to me. A friend of mine pastors it, and he called me one day, and he said, would you be willing to act as an apostle to our church? And I said, well, I'd do anything for you, but can you explain to me what you're thinking? And he said, well... You preach at our church, our people trust you. Uh, you, you've taught us the discipleship model here. What if What if I got into trouble as a pastor, or what if my board got into a division, or what if we had an issue in the church we couldn't resolve internally? Now what most Baptist churches would do is they'd split and start two other churches. And that's the wrong thing. We're advocating against all of this splitting and fighting He said, we need outside voices that our church would trust that would come in and bring the congregation together. And he said, would you be one of those outside voices to our church? And I said, absolutely, I will. And if they ever had a crisis, they'd call me and a couple other pastors that I know, and we would go up there and sit as a council to help their church resolve dispute and stay together so that the, the testimony of Christ and the, and the mission of Christ, as you were talking about, is not diminished. Right. That we stay on, stay on point.
2: So, and just because that's not specifically given in the Scripture, doesn't mean it's anti-biblical or anti the Spirit of God. That we would all agree that that sounds like a good practice and a good thing that God would enjoy for us to do, and He's given us. The flexibility within these structures in order to make these decisions right. because we have the and Holy Spirit we
0: don't have the flexibility to trash it all right and say we don't need begins right. we don't need elders we don't need pastors everybody said that's not gonna work that's gonna be chaos but some flexibility within yeah. interpretations of
1: that yeah we're we're getting kind of close to the end of time here I want to ask a couple of questions uh, that people have asked one uh, someone asked just what is the length of time that someone has to be a member here before they can be considered uh, for diakonos or for a deacon? And so, can you just for two two seconds mm, talk gonna, about what the process is for becoming a deacon? Okay, let me
0: let me just defer to Alan for a second. Do we have a time a set timeline on there? Yeah, the, uh, okay, it's a year. So, <clears throat> uh, is it uh, one year membership requirement? You can't really get to know somebody overnight. So. Correct, and uh, you'll also notice maybe if you've just joined our church and you said, hey, I want to volunteer in Children's Church, there's a little moratorium there for a while. Can you all tell me what that is? Six months. Six months uh, before you can have access to children in a ministry here. There's a reason for that. It's something we coordinate with our insurance company. It's something we coordinate with best practices among church leaders. Uh, If someone joins the church this morning and you say, I want access to the children next week, um, and you may just be a wonderful-hearted person, and, and, and that's great. And we would ask you, we have a six-month waiting period before you can do that. People who want access to our children for the wrong reasons will not wait around here for six months typically. You understand what I'm saying without me having to say everything? So there's a, there, some things are structured for a reason, for, for safety and, and for best practices. Uh, for deacon, because you're asking about being one of the official roles in the church, and there is a biblical principle about you know don't 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 rush to put someone in, in a position of authority, so I think one is a good process here's the way we do it uh, We elect annually uh deacons we do it from nomination from the floor, so any church member can nominate anyone for a deacon and
1: that's okay, I'm, right. I'm going to pause you right here too because the second question is can women be deacons uh,
0: you can you can nominate anyone for a deacon, and I'll come back to that, but you can nominate anyone to be a deacon and uh that triggers an email, it's all done online through the church website, Uh, during deacon-nominating season, which is always in the month of July, if I remember correctly, and you can nominate a deacon, you have to say, you know, this is Josh Martin. I am one of your members. I'm nominating, you know, uh, uh, so uh, I'm nominating whoever you want to nominate to be a deacon. Here's why. And you have a free-form thing where you have to say, because it's not a popularity contest. Diakonos has a definition. It means servant, minister to the congregation. And so you say, here's why so-and-so should be a, a, a deacon here. This is the way, my family had this problem, and here's the way that somebody served me. And I think this was beautifully scriptural and the way they helped me. I've seen them help other families in the church. And as I've been watching Jeff Parks do what he does, I think he'd make a great deacon. And that's exactly what somebody said about Jeff. That's why he was nominated, and that's why we voted him as a deacon. Does that make sense? So the nomination comes in. When we get it in the church office, it goes into one of our mailboxes. Uh, Erica, who handles the financial records, takes, uh, let's use Jeff Parks, for example, who is nominated. It's one of our new Dickens. Uh, it goes to her, and she pulls Jeff's tithing record. Okay. We believe that if people are going to make financial decisions for the future of this church, they should be people who are vested financially in the future of this church. Does that seem like a fair standard for the congregation? So we're not looking at how much Jeff gave. We're not looking at, you know, man, he didn't give X thousand, so he's not qualified. It's not about that. It's about is there anything that looks like a systematic, regular, you understand what I'm saying, giving process, that giving is a part of his uh, life and a part of his faith. And, And Eric will just, I don't see what the amount of it should have said. Yep, it's there. There's a, there's a consistent tithing or giving record there for Mr. Parks. That goes over to Allen, who really is an elder, but we don't have elders. He's our head deacon. It goes over to Allen. And what Allen does is Allen then takes a deacon vetting form. And the nominate and puts it together, and he, ca- he calls Jeff Parks on the phone and says, Mr. Parks, I'd like to meet with you and your spouse, or Miss Parks, I'd like to meet with you and your spouse. I'd like to sit and talk to you. You've been nominated as a deacon, and we need to talk about what that means for your family. And you have conversations with them. They have to fill out a, 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 a slightly invasive questionnaire that says about you. Tell us your testimony. Tell us about your salvation experience. Tell us about who you disciple. The mission of the church is to make disciples. We don't think people should be in official leadership roles who don't make disciples. That would be like a conflict of interest, wouldn't it? Can you imagine, you know, uh, someone being official over any organization that made anything? You know, can you imagine the CEO of GMAC driving a Ford? (laughs) It would never happen. just would never happen. And uh, so we believe that if you're going to be an official leader, then you've got to be involved in the mission, which is making disciples. And it means you've launched from your group, and typically you're already leading a group or have launched another group. And anyway, they work through the vetting form, and there's a lot of, listen, uh, Jeff, do you mind if I am open with your life? You can say no, and I'll just go to another example. Jeff was just diagnosed with cancer a few months ago. And when your nomination came up, I immediately had a conversation with Alan and said, I'm not sure Jeff be willing to serve. He's just dealt with a whole lot on his plate right now. And uh, thank God you're doing great, and, and you're about to finish with all the treatment, and, and it's not, you know what I'm saying? But that was your call. And so I bring that up as a beautiful example. We have a lot of people who are nominated, and they say to us, not right now. I'm dealing with some things in my life, and I'm a little overwhelmed. And you would, have, you would have been certainly within your rights to say, I'm a little overwhelmed right now. And I think it's a testimony that we nominated the right guy that you said, no, I got this. I can deal with my cancer and somebody else's cancer at the same time. I think that's, that's quite heroic, actually. So anyway, there's a whole process that happens. And then once they're vetted, they can take themselves off. We can take them off. We present a board to the church, and we ratify it. And that's the way the deacon process works here. So I am shocked, because I see that look twinkle in your eye. I am shocked, which is the, really the, what's underlying the question here, that no woman has been nominated heretofore. So I'm shocked that in this round we didn't have women nominated. And if you say, why don't we have women deacons? No one's ever nominated one. And I think they never have, probably because we've never had an open conversation about it. So... Uh, which in the first service they were firing these questions at us, can a woman be a deacon, can a woman be a pastor, can a woman be an elder, and so let's just deal with this for a moment. We've never had a woman deacon because no one's ever nominated a woman deacon, and I don't know why we've never nominated a woman deacon. I feel after this conversation we'll have several nominated next year just because we've talked about it openly. And I, would, I think it would be worth saying to the congregation, let's, let's don't nominate a woman deacon so we can have a token woman. I think that's uh, insulting to the woman. Uh, let's don't nominate a Filipino man just so we'll say we have one and be diverse. You see what I'm saying? Let's nominate men and women for diaconos that are diaconos, And we can see in their lives that they are servants and they are ministers to the congregation. And if you put those people through to the board, the church will ratify them. They will be, di- they will be the official uh, diakonos with the title here at this church. Uh, there, there's no prohibition against women. As a matter of fact, woman deacon, let me just take this one quickly because the time's way shot, but woman deacon is the, is the slam dunk. And again, people bring their bias to translation. So let me peel back the curtain for a minute and let me, let me show you. Can you guys up in the booth give me K, uh, Romans 16, 1, KJV with Strong's numbers? Okay, so this is like one of our pastoral study tools right here. This is a King James text on the left. Uh, Textus Receptus, King James Translation, Romans sixteen one The numbers represent Greek Definitions, Greek words I commend to you Phoebe, our Sister, which is a servant of the church Which is at Chincheria Every time you see a number in brackets That's how many Greek words There are, the English Words, that's how many English words there are So, I commend unto you Phoebe Our sister, which is a servant Greek 1249 Do you see that? So if you go to a Greek dictionary, standard Greek lexicon, look up 1249 in the Greek. It will have the definition in the Greek dictionary of what Greek 1249, what the word is. I've already clicked the button and it popped up this window on the right hand side of the screen over here. This is a separate window. G1249, Strong's Concordance. you see what the word is? Anybody want to say it out loud? Diakonos. 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 An attendant that is a waiter or menial duties, specifically a Christian teacher, a Christian pastor, deacon, minister, servant, KJV, 30 occurrences. All right, flip to parallels version of Romans 16.1. All right, this five different Bible versions, paraphrases, and, and, and more, more word for word, God's word paraphrase. With this letter, I introduce you Phoebe. She is our sister in the Christian faith, a deacon in the church of the city of Centria, ESV. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Chenterea. I commend to you Phoebe, a deacon, church of Centria. I commend to you Phoebe, servant, church of Centria. NLT is a, a, a more of a paraphrase too. I commend to you Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Chenterea. You say, okay, which one's right? Let me tell you what the word diakonos means. Servant, minister. Or a deacon. That's the definition of the word. So which version is right? They're all right. They're all right. So when it says Phoebe is a servant, yeah, and I would to God, we had 500 diakonos-minded people in this church who would serve each other with love. Amen? Now here's the bias. Whenever that word occurs and Paul says, Timothy and Titus and I are a diakonos of the church, and they translate the word minister. you see the difference? When it occurs with a woman, the translator said servant, not minister. There's the bias creeping in in the translation committee. Does that make sense? The same word diakonos is applied to the men as minister or deacon. When it's applied to the woman in the text... The translator said, can't be deacon because a woman can't be a deacon, so therefore she must be a servant. It's a circular argument. Does that make sense? So what's really happening? Phoebe's a deacon of the church at Chintria. and she's so respected that Paul, writing the most valuable book in the world, possibly, the book of Romans, has authored the original autograph of the book of Romans, and he has taken it... And he has put it into Phoebe's hands at Corinth. And Phoebe the deacon from Cenchreae, which is down the street from Corinth, has, if you could find this paper today, that book would be worth more than a Van Gogh, than a Rembrandt. That would be the most valuable book in the history of the world if somebody could find that original copy of it. It would be worth million, hundreds of millions of dollars, the original autograph from the Apostle Paul. I'm telling you, the most expensive book in the world was put into the hands of Phoebe. She put it in her purse. She got on a boat outside of Corinth and she sailed to Italy. And then she went overland to the Church of Rome. And she said, Church of Rome, I bring you greetings from the Apostle Paul. He has sent a very lengthy 16 page letter, and I'm commissioned to read it to you. And she read the letter, the book of Romans, to the Romans in her own voice, holding the original autographs of the Apostle Paul. If you don't think Paul trusted this girl, you got something else going on in your mind. This was one trustworthy, reputable gal. And Paul referred to her in Romans 16.1 as the deacon from the church at Chintria. The problem is the guys who were translating the Bible had a worldview that didn't allow for that. A bias. And so they translated Servant. ESV is not always so friendly to women. KJV, NKJV, you're not so friendly to women. NIV, NLT, a little more friendly to women. In the Greek, there's not punctuation. There's no paragraph marks. In many cases, there's no pronouns. So when you're translating, we have to use then. we have to use the generic he, like you would in English. It doesn't always mean it was a he, But you get the generic he because there's no pronouns supplied. And the translator has the freedom to put his own bias right there. So the short answer is to a woman, can a woman be a deacon? Slam dunk. Paul called the women uh, Trephina, Trephosa, the two women that served with Clement uh, in in Philippi, uh, Phoebe, by the same word. He said, Timothy and Titus are my fellow ministers. Trophina and Trophosa are fellow ministers. You tell me what that means. Whatever t- Timothy and Titus and these guys were to Paul, she was to Paul also. Fellow ministers. Same exact word is used. So, can a woman be a deacon? Slam dunk. Many Baptist churches have women deacons, many non-denominational churches have uh, women serving in, in deacon roles. And I think for Cornerstone, we, we have no issue with it here whatsoever. I think we'd welcome it. And I would just say to the congregation, when you get ready to do that next year, uh, we have a a wonderful body of qualified women here. Make sure those are the women you you nominate. And they'll go through the vetting process. Uh, I have had a high level, we just mentioned it to a woman or two uh, over the years, and several of the women said, I wouldn't want to do that. I don't want to be the one to be the first. I don't want to break the glass ceiling around here. And, and that may be a real thing, too, that we need to deal with, you know, where somebody who's highly qualified says, if it's political, I don't want to do it, you know? And I can understand that, why, why you might back off from that, and I would just encourage you don't. We need your voice. We need your representation and your service here uh, in the congregation.
1: Yeah, one thing that we didn't really touch on at all is uh, we keep talking about God's gifted everyone with equal access to all the gifts that he's given you. Um, we have linked in the YouVersion event and also in the email that you got this morning, uh, the Spiritual Gifts Assessment. Uh, we did this a few months ago. We got over 100 people who did it. So you probably have already done it. But if you haven't, the link is out there. Um, it's, it'll just be a good way for you to really dig in and, and really figure out exactly, you know, where God's called you to be serving and in what capacity. So in the next five weeks,
0: we're going to do a sermon series. We're going to start a sermon series next week called uh, Reverse the Curse. And we're going to talk about marriage next week. What did God intend when he invented marriage? By the way, we didn't invent it. God did. And what did he intend in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when he invented marriage? And then that's going to morph into a conversation that picks up where this one's leaving off this morning. It'll involve what has uh, history done to women and where are we now in history and what should our thoughts be about their inclusion and their roles within, within the church We want you to have firmly painted in your mind, though, what a first century church looked like, what was normative, who's at the table, who's leading, who's involved, is everyone using their spiritual gifts, which is a good way to conclude this service. Above all things, we want you to be using your gifts here at Cornerstone. Whatever your background, whatever your gender, we want you to be using your gifts here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. We wish that everyone was a pastor caring for the spiritual needs of people around you. Can you imagine what a beautiful church this would be if everyone had a pastor's heart to the people around you? We want everyone to be diaconos, a servant, a minister to the whether you have the official title or not. Listen, have the heart that says that's what I want to be. And uh, I think it's wonderful to be a part of a church that has given you uh, we want every person to have a ministry giving you access to ministry, and really through the discipleship process, every man and woman has access to leading their own ministry here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. Listen, time's gone. Uh, We'll have to pick this conversation up a little bit later then. I didn't get to, can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman be an elder? I tell you what you should do, you should read. Read and study if you want books. uh, We can supply recommended reading. And that's a whole other conversation for a whole other time. Deacon's the slam dunk. The other one's a little more... You know, but the deacon's the slam dunk. Uh, let's conclude here. Let's get ready to have a song. Let's have a moment of reflection, a time of prayer. Uh, if you need to join the church, David's going to be right here and he can talk to you. If you need to make a spiritual decision, listen, this would be the moment. Let's Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's do this. Let's, as a congregation, pray that God would give us the heart of a diakonos. Man, if every man, woman, and child here said, I I love my fellow church members, I, I want to serve my fellow member, can you imagine what harmony and what a beautiful environment's created in the church? I want to pastor someone. Listen, I hope you want to pastor someone. Someone's probably pouring into your life right now. God wants you to pour into someone else's life when you're mature and able to do that. And I think it'd be an appropriate conversation to have with God this morning to say, God, help me to have a heart of a deacon and the heart of a pastor to serve here at Cornerstone, my brothers and sisters. Lord, make me a minister of your gospel. Make me a servant in your church. Whatever background you come from, I want you to know you're welcome here. There's a place for you here. Maybe you came into the house of God today and you had hoped to hear more of the gospel and less about the structure of ecclesiology of the church. But let me give you a one-minute gospel. The Bible says that Christ came into the world and he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day to be your Savior. He substituted himself to the punishment of God's wrath so that you could go free and be forgiven. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, but you are longing to in your heart to be forgiven, to be a part of the family of God, then you ought to cry out to him this morning. Romans 10 says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He will hear your prayer and he will accept you into his family. Pray like this. Take my words and make it your own prayer. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I want to make my confession to you. Lord, I need a Savior. And I pray this morning that you would forgive me of my sins, wash me and cleanse me. Jesus, I receive you into my heart and into my life as my Lord and my Savior today. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. I'd ask you, God, just to adopt me into your family now as one of your children. Let me live a life serving you here in the kingdom of God. Lord, thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me today.
1: In Jesus' name we pray.